On a quiet spring day, the University of Melbourne feels a world away from the shootouts and car chases of Hollywood. But literally buried underneath campus is the location for one of Australian cinema's most iconic scenes. It is here, between the concrete pillars of Southlawn Car Park, that Max meets the iconic Ford Falcon V8 from the original Mad Max. Walking through this dark, cavernous space, you can see why director George Miller chose it for his Aussie Gothic masterpiece. Sound carries under perfectly spaced concrete pillars and low parabolic ceilings, practically made for the sound of a big V8 engine. This humble car park is like Australia's answer to the Gothic cathedrals of Europe. But it isn't the only slice of Australian history to be found on campus. The University of Melbourne is home to 12 museums filled with thousands of objects. Each object has its own story, but who gets to decide what stories are told? I'm Angus Thompson, and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each episode, we take one object from the university's collections and look at the forgotten stories behind them. This week, a letter written by another champion of the Aussie Gothic. Joan Lindsay penned Picnic at Hanging Rock, an Australian classic, but it's one of her letters that caught the attention of our reporter, Pema Monaghan. As a kid, I loved nursery rhymes. I had a big book of them, which I memorised. Do you remember the house that Jack built? The house that Jack built has these strange little characters, a maidle forlorn, a cow with a crumpled horn, and a rat that gets eaten at the end. It's a poem about the ways in which the people who came before us can shape our lives. So maybe that's why I was so struck by this letter I found in the digital archives of the Grimwade collection. A single illustrated page, it was one of some 700 items left to the University of Melbourne by Russell Grimwade, pharmacologist, hobbyist and collector, and his wife, Mab. The letter began like this. This is the house that Aeneer built. This is the chimney that smoked in the house that Aeneer built. He was the first person to drive from Melbourne to Adelaide and back. He was a very interesting scientist. He was the first to write an anthology of the Eucalypt. He was so meticulous. Outgoing. Scientifically and mathematically minded. Genial. Creative. And endlessly enthusiastic and interested. He wasn't alone. But he wanted what he valued to be remembered and to be studied, and that was part of the reason why they donated to the University of Melbourne. Alyssa Bunbury, curator at the Grimwade Collection, says Russell believed this archive showcased the best of Australian culture and achievement. You know, they were very much people of their time, as we all are, really. I've always been very interested in the past and the objects left over, but I have a troubled relationship with institutionalised history. I was a mixed-race kid at a majority white high school in the suburbs of Western Australia, and that doesn't imbue you with a great trust in authority figures. So when I learned that we were going to be looking at the archives of a person who felt like he had the right to determine Australian history, to decide about what should be remembered as Australian achievement, I found that really challenging. But this letter sucked me in. It's dated October 12, 1925. 
It seems to be some sort of housewarming gift, telling the story of how Russell and Mab acquired a home designed by Harold Desborough Anir. Why, amongst objects of obvious historical significance, like etchings of Captain Cook's cottage and photographs of the Kelly Gang's last stand, had the Grimwades included this little piece of their lives? And it seems pretty clear that it was a housewarming gift for their country residents. And I'm looking at it as we speak. It's a beautifully arranged and designed poem on a simple piece of paper, which has been written in a very clear font, labelled The House Anir Built. And the poetry runs down the page, but is interspersed with small little drawings. In the top left corner was a drawing of a peculiar house. It didn't look like a real house. It was in the shape of a Y, for one thing. And the letter is attributed to Joan Lindsay. Joan Lindsay authored one of the most enduring pieces of Australian literature written in English, a Gothic novel called Picnic at Hanging Rock. I've always been a big fan of the Gothic, which allows for explorations of the uncanny and for representations of the marginalised. If you haven't read the book, you've probably seen the 1976 film adaptation directed by Peter Weir. And if you know anything about the Gothic, you know that one of its most important motifs is the spooky old house. This is the house that Aeneas built. This is the chimney that smoked in the house that Aeneas built. Westerfield House, Frankston, on land whose original owners are the Kulin Nation. If you looked at Westerfield House from above, you'd see that it is laid out strangely, like a three-pronged star. And I have visited the house, and it's a really wonderful design in that each aspect of the each of those arms can have windows on all three sides. So it sometimes can look like a uh, possibly a dark house. It's local stone on the bottom floor and then half-timbered on the upper floor in what we would think of as an Elizabethan style of uh, timbering. But when you're within it, there's views in every direction. Harold Desborough Arnia, he designed this extraordinary house, which is still there, still with beautiful grounds. Harry Edquist is an architecture and design historian and a curator. She literally wrote the book on Desborough Arnia. She's fascinated by the architects of the Victorian arts and crafts movement. Really, I argue that they became sort of proto-modernists insofar as they developed new ways of thinking about architecture, new ways of planning, new ways of thinking about materiality. And they also organised themselves into societies and clubs and discussion groups and things of that nature as the new century evolved. The arts and crafts movement was all about the beauty of the handcrafted, It was a socialist movement. It rejected the uniformity of the Industrial Revolution, celebrating good craftsmanship, an art for the many, not for the few. In artist William Morris's words, the style of arts and crafts boiled down to have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. But of course it was all terribly expensive. I mean, no one could afford the things that they built. To me, these big houses in Victoria seem like the opposite of a socialist space. They must have cost so much money. Yes, they were constructed by the handiwork of artisans and craftspeople, but at the end of the day, the people who lived in these houses were largely rich and white. Was it just a case of architects taking funding from these rich people because then they'd get to build something crazy and wild and cool? 
Westerfield House was the weekend residence of Russell and Mab Grimwade. The front door was made of reclaimed timber and hardware from an early ship called the First Australia, and the downstairs part of one hallway of the house was designed as a carriage to host their little motor car. Uh, the Grimways didn't have kids, so that possibly explains the extravagance of an entire wing of the house devoted to a car and a workshop. But Westerfield, I think, is interesting because it's on a greenfield site. It doesn't have a passage. It doesn't have that Victorian sort of, you know, formal passageway with rooms off. It was quite um, a liberated plan. The complete design of Westerfield in Langwarren was the approach to what we would call the early stages of open plan living. So a modern way of living inside a house built using traditional construction methods. When you look at the house, you drive up to it, it looks quite you know, old fashioned, but when you actually start to tease out the ideas and see the lineages there, the forward trajectories of modernism, it's thoughtful and thorough. And it couldn't have been designed by anyone else except in the end. Okay, I get that, but a front door made of wood from one of the early settler ships, that makes me feel very uncomfortable, I have to say. This This is is the the man who wrote wrote the check check that paid for the chimney that that smoked in the house a year built. This is the woman who married the man who wrote the check that smoked in the house a year built. So who were the Grimwades and where did these big checks come from? Both of them came from wealthy backgrounds, but from different sources. Their parents had come to Australia and used the land, which of course was, you know, taken land, but used the land in different ways. So the Kelly family made their money through pastoral properties and also as early investors of what is now BHP Billiton, so mining, whereas the Grimwades was actually through pharmaceuticals. The current residents of Westerfield House are Joyce and Simon Welsh, they, along with their daughter Emma, gave us a tour of their property via Zoom. I'm Joyce Welsh. We live at Westerfield, which is in Robinsons Road, Frankston South. Yeah, just really small things. So see this on the front door? It's an arrow that he did pointing north. He liked to know where he was. <laughs> it's really clear that the Welshers have a great sense of the history of their home and its place in a bigger Australian story. It's a sense of history that Russell Grimwade also had. This is the front doorbell, which is um, you ring by this rather very quaint chain and you pull the chain and... (laughs) He rigged that up? Yeah. That's always been there. That's all from the Grimwade's day. Or whether the bell came from the first Australia too, I've never known. (laughs) I'd like to know. Kind of seems like a curator himself. Why does everyone describe him as a scientist? Alyssa Bunbury again. He brought things like the commercial use of gases to Australia, amongst various other um, innovations. You know, one of his party tricks was taking uh, x-rays. As a university student, had access to an early x-ray machine. I mean, I have no idea what the power of those of the radiation was, probably terrifying. But he had this, you know, very inquisitive mind. Everyone I spoke to talked about Russell the scientist. I heard it again and again that he was mathematical and clinical and interested in content over beauty. But I'm not so convinced by that story. This man carved lamps out of pieces of mango wood. He lived in these architecturally strange and interesting homes. 
and he had this incredibly Victorian feeling about him. A curator obsessed with amassing things and creating this collection that tells a story he believed in. That's a creative act. You can't do those things without vision. And not all artists are interested in making things beautiful. Some artists are interested in making things that reflect their own ideologies or vision of the world. But what about his wife, Mab? The way that Joan Lindsay writes about Mab in the poem seems actually kind of rude. This is the woman who married the man who wrote the check. That could be really insulting, but I reckon it's an in-joke. I'm not sure though, since no one seems to have much insight into Mab. Alyssa says she's hard to get to know. You know, some of the family members talked about him treating her like Dresden China. They also grew roses. Two roses were actually bred by them, or possibly with the assistance of Alistair Clark, who's the the rose expert of the time. And so there's a tea rose called the Mab Grimway Rose. So Mab is this mysterious figure treated by her husband like fine porcelain and immortalised as a tea rose. But we know that when Russell and Mab got engaged, Mab's father objected because he thought that Russell's family came from maid money. So there was an element of snobbery there. When her father encouraged her or urged her or required her to break off her engagement, she went travelling to Japan with a friend. So this is in the 1900s. In the first decade of the 20th century, she travelled to Japan. Uh, with, I believe it's a female friend. To me, that sounds quite extraordinary that she was able to do that, as uh, she would have been in her very early 20s at that stage. But then she came back and they um, reconnected and were married, and they had a really long and loving relationship. These are the artists who lived in the castle next door to the woman who married the man who wrote the cheque that paid for the chimney that smoked in the house and he built. This is the car that was bought by the artist who lived in the castle next door to the woman who married the man who wrote the cheque that paid for the chimney that smoked in the house and he built. I find Grimway difficult. His enthusiasm and interest in science is winning, but I can't help but see him in a light he may not have liked. It makes me think of something Alyssa said about the Grimwades. You know, they were very much people of their time, as we all are, really. The Grimwade collection and Westerfield House itself represent the interests of Russell and Mab, the things they thought were important about Australia. This letter, like a signature on a painting, or like the visible wooden structural beams of Westerfield House, was helpfully left almost absentmindedly in the Grimwade collection to remind us that histories are constructed. To my mind, Russell was an artist. He wanted to create a body of work that would stand and last, work that would be persuasive. This is what he creates with his collection, a persuasive story about Australian history. And Westerfield, a strange house that draws from European aesthetic ideals and sits upon part of the Kulin nation. It's a perfect metaphor for an imposing narrative that has been made to fit somewhere it shouldn't. That story was made by Pema Monaghan, Josie Hess and Claudia Sue. Next time on Uncurated, six photographs from an infamous moment in Australian folklore, the day outlaw Ned Kelly was finally captured. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people by graduate students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our producer is Nell Gerards and sound design is by Clancy Barlin and Thomas Phillips. 
Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producers, Rachel Fountain and Louisa Lim. And thanks also to Ryan Johnson, Ryan Jeffries, and everyone in the Museums and Collections Department. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us and it helps other people find the show. I'm Angus Thompson. See you next time.